Next up, we have Josh Fisher. He's a scientist uh, just up the road here at JPL. He's going to be talking about terrestrial uh, ecosystems and land surface modeling. And let's all welcome Josh. Thanks, Ryan. So, um, so Ryan and, and the organizers asked me to talk about terrestrial ecosystems and the modeling, the land surface modeling. Um, and Ryan asked me about a week ago. So I didn't have a lot of time. So this is basically pulled from uh, my general research talk, which a few of you in, in the audience have, have seen. So apologies for that. Um, and, and Leslie set up a, a good um, structure. I mean, she talked about the, the atmosphere, the oceans, the land, fossil fuel components. And uh, now, and, you know, and pointed to some of these key uncertainties in the land component. Now I'll be talking about really just the terrestrial ecosystems. What are these uncertainties? What are these processes? What are the things we think about from uh, a terrestrial ecosystem perspective? Um, and really trying to address this, this, this fate of the terrestrial biosphere as well as the rest of the planet. So our story begins in 1835 when Hans Christian Andersen wrote a children's story about a young woman who, whose royal identity was uh, discovered because um, she had a true physical sensitivity of a very, very small pea placed beneath uh, her bed. That only a true uh, princess or, or, uh, would, would, would uh, be able to feel. Um, and in the morning, she woke up co complaining about this discomfort, there, thereby verifying her claims to royalty. So the, the land surface in the, in, in the Earth system is a very small component of the entire Earth system, yet it exerts this enormous um, uncertainty, this, uh, this breathing of, the, of, of CO2, and uh, the, our uncertainty in future projections of climate are, are hugely dependent on this very small uh, proverbial P. So if we think about where these uncertainties come from, and sorry, but it's hard to see, but these are, these are all the different climate models that we, we tend to see in IPCC type uh, assessments. And they're made up of land and atmosphere and, and, and ocean and other components. And so the land represents one component, uh, contributing uncertainty or certainty. Now what is, what, what are these models? What are these land models? Well, they're very, they're, they're sim simplifications of reality. So you start with, you know, maybe some land and throw a bunch of weather at it, maybe some CO2, and up pops an ecosystem, right? And uh, if you change your rainfall or your, your humidity or something, you change your kind of ecosystem. That's, a, that's, that's kind of basically how these models work. Now, what are the processes in these models? Well, it starts from microns large pores on leaves called stomata that open and close. And when they're open, they take up CO2 and, uh, and release water. And when they're closed, they stop taking up CO2 and stop releasing water. Yet these microns' uh, large pores are kind of like that pea uh, in the princess and the pea. They are so small, yet exert this enormous impact on the entire Earth. Uh, we also deal with photosynthesis. Now, photosynthesis is comprised of very complex uh, biochemical reactions, uh, subsequent equations. But these can't all be uh, processed in a global sense for every single leaf or every single species or plant type. So assumptions have to be made about how to scale up these fine scale biochemical uh, processes to large scale um, representation. 
transpiration. I told you water coming out of a, out of a leaf. Um, I couldn't get a good picture of that. So here's like a picture of a geyser. To, you, know, you can imagine <laughs> that there's water coming out of the leaf. Um, again, uh, an influencing weather um, and, and climate uh, in terms of the latent heating versus the sensible heating. How do you scale up these individual leaf components to entire canopies or to entire ecosystems? Not all leaves are made equal. You've got bigger leaves at the bottom, more shaded, different angles. And so our assumptions and our scaling of these processes can't all be uniform for every single leaf or our ability to scale. And that, that, that presents some uncertainty or, or some challenges. How is light diffused through the canopy? Again, influencing how some of these reactions or processes get turned on or off. And how, how does it heat up uh, the, the canopy? Again, this is a connection to some of the remote sensing images where we can see these temperatures. The canopies act as interception uh, um, blocks for water coming down, so water might not hit the soil, uh, infiltrating into the soil instead of resting on the canopy. Shutting down photosynthetic uh, and transpiration processes, because it presents a barrier, and evaporating back up, uh, getting the interception is important. Aerodynamics. The land surface was originally kind of included in climate type models, not as a, uh, as a carbon uh, um, process, but as a as an aerodynamic process, as winds, these winds that Leslie showed uh, influencing how uh, carbon dioxide or our clouds at the time uh, moved around were influenced by the roughness of the land surface. Phenology and litterfall, a, a challenging process in models. You want to be able to, in deciduous plants or, or even evergreen plants, um, you want to be able to drop your leaves at the right time and in the right amounts uh, and for the right reasons. And so getting these uh, processes in the models correct uh, is, is important. There are thousands and thousands of species, and not all species are created equally among the individuals within a species. But we cannot measure, we cannot model all individual species uh, individually, um, similarly to the reasons why we can't model every single ATP in a, in a, in a photosynthetic process. So assumptions have to be made. And, and we'll talk more about this. I think later, um, especially as we talk about new hyperspectral type trait approaches, and, and Ryan Pavlik has been working a lot of this as well. But up until then, up until now, or this future uh, approach, most models, or nearly all, nearly all the models that we talk about, group species into plant functional types, whether it's a, whether it's a tropical, grass, crop, um, deciduous. And you know you could have one grass, or you could have two grasses, or you could have three grasses. You so the more plant functional types you have, the more computing resources you need are needed. Um, but then you get better process representation. So there's this trade-off between how many PFTs, these plant functional types, you have, and the um, the amount of uh, realism as well as computational demand are needed. And this represents a huge uncertainty uh, in in the land surface models or the terrestrial biosphere models. Autotrophic respiration. So, uh, so plants take up a lot of carbon, and they burn that carbon for metabolism. Uh, they, they create the sugars, and they burn the sugars. Uh, and and we, we, we need to know that, especially um, under droughts, when maybe the, the gross uh, photosynthesis, or the gross carbon coming in, has ceased because of lack of water, yet plants are still um, 
trying to metabolize and, and use up some carbon stores. How do we understand these carbon stores? Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of like, how much money do you have in the bank? And it varies from individual to individual and life strategy to life strategy. Different plants allocate carbon to different components um, at different rates and, and for different reasons. So you could have plants that put on a lot of leaves or um, put, it on, put on a lot of wood. And, and that has uh, impl impl implications for residence time and turnover. So again, splitting these up into the carbon and nitrogen allocation between leaves, wood, and roots. Um, uh, these are all processes represented uh, slightly differently in different models. Uh, back to water again. So water will come through that isn't intercepted um, and might influence the micro uh, topography of, of ecosystems. Not necessarily represented in the models, but still um, some aspect of this process is, is, uh, is in these models. Soil layers and soil pools. This is, a, this is another one that has this computational demand versus realism. Um, the, there are multiple layers of soil uh, carbon, uh, as well as nitrogen and other uh, nutrients. Um, and the more layers that are in the model, again, the more computational demand is required. Um, but uh, Leslie alluded to the, the carbon stored in uh, Arctic soils, in these permafrost soils. And there's huge uncertainties there. Uh, again, at enormous amounts of carbon there. And if those aren't represented well, both in terms of amount and process of transformation or release back to the atmosphere in the models, then we've got a lot of uncertainties on hand. And that's what we're finding right now. Nutrients. Nutrients um, have been ignored mostly in models uh, up until recently. Um, not for lack of knowledge, but there's just a priority list. A lot of this is very new science. Climate models have not been around long. The land surface models have not. Uh, global land service models have not been around long in a relative sense. And it's one thing at a time, carbon, water, um, and now we're getting to the nutrients, the nitrogen and phosphorus being uh, the, the two most important ones generally, globally. Um, decomposition. It's like phenology. You want to be able to decompose your dead leaves uh, at the right rates. You don't want all your leaves to like hit the ground and decompose instantly. Uh, but you don't want them piling up to the sky as well. So getting that decomposition process right, which is a mixture of water, temperature, and this, this, this carbon quality um, is very important, again, with these droughts as, as water is changing, as temperature is changing, as the species or the allocation to leaves or types of carbon changes, uh, these decomposition processes are, uh, are, are increasingly difficult to understand. Heterotrophic respiration. There are millions and millions of bugs eating all that, all those leaves and, and dead sticks and, and, and all the other roots and other material and burping and farting that CO2 back up to the atmosphere. And that is that heterotrophic respiration. That is, uh, um, that, that's carbon going back. At you. But we're not going to model all those individual bugs, right? I mean, again, so these assumptions have to, uh, uh, be made to understand how to integrate across all these little bugs that are potentially behaving in different ways, maybe shifting their, comp uh, their community structure as uh, climate and, and moisture and, and temperature regimes change. Um, getting that right also is important for 
uh, understanding our, our the net understanding of carbon exchange or net ecosystem exchange of carbon dioxide, um, which Leslie showed uh, for one of these flux towers, getting how much is coming in through photosynthesis, your, your GPP, and how much is going back out through that autotrophic respiration of the, of the plants burning their own carbon and the heterotrophic respiration of the bugs eating the dead material. Um, it's, it hovers around zero. Uh, if, it's, if it's going in, then the, e the biosphere is a carbon sink. If it's going out in a net sense, then it's a carbon source. And we want the biosphere to be kind of a carbon sink to help mitigate atmospheric CO2 uh, concentrations and, and fossil fuel uh, uh, burning. But if there's a lot of droughts or temperatures are changing or there are fires or bugs, uh, we could easily have uh, traditionally or historically carbon sinks turning into carbon sources and we need to understand that. And that's contributing a lot to these uncertainties. Snow melt, um, uh, an important process in terms of turning ecosystem processes on or off. Um, easy to see from space. If, it, if there's snow or there or not, um, uh, but very hard to model in terms of getting rid of that snow at the right time uh, in the right amounts. How water infiltrates through soils, uh, again, affecting uh, um, where, how much water is available for ecosystem processes to be turned on or off. Soil evaporation, um, uh, again, influencing weather like evapotranspiration. Evapotranspiration you know, this is just fog, but you can imagine water coming off these plants. That would be the transpiration through the leaves and the evaporation um, off. And then the trace gases and aerosols, like the, the, uh, the, the woman at the back was asking about. Um, another process of ecosystems also influencing uh, climate and weather. Uh, runoff, how is water uh, distributed, available to us? How is it routed over the landscape and as this changes? And then, of course, all these water components have to balance each other. Um, again, not a picture of water balance, it's just a guy balancing over water. But if you don't have that water balance right, um, you'll end up having too much water in one place or another. You have dynamic uh, components of ecosystems now, where you have competition between, uh, you know, between individuals, between species, you know, duking it out for, for space or for light or for water or for nutrients. Um, We've got establishment of new species or of existing species in gaps. Uh, traditionally, establishment was, you know, if, there were, if a tree falls in a forest, which species gets to <coughs> colonize it first? Now we've expanded that, this out into a global sense as we have new climate niches, as, as there's warming in the boreal or arctic regions, can new species uh, uh, invade or, or, or establish um, uh, or going upslope uh, um, to, to beat the heat? And then how do you kill a tree? Uh, this, is, uh, this is actually, I mean, you would, you would think this is one of the most critical components in uh, uh, models or in our understanding of ecosystems, but the, our understanding of how plants die is not clear. Y you could run out of water and, and, and their vessels could cavitate and, and you, you know, they, they would die that way. Or if there was not enough water, they could just close off their stomata and not take enough carbon, and, and like I said, they require carbon to metabolize, and they could die from carbon starvation. So you've got kind of a couple competing uh, things that are, are potentially killing trees, as well as uh, less, <laughs> less obvious, or more obvious uh, disturbance processes like fire. Um, is, what is that? Is that, is that me? I don't know. All right. So 
Siri is watching this presentation. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, now if you ask Siri, what is the most important process? She should know. Okay. Um, so you've got all these processes locked up into this very simplified model. But of course, we know ecosystems don't look like this. They look more like this. And if you've got all these processes overlaying on top of these types of ecosystems, and we're still trying to understand this. Now, we've got all these processes. And of course, within all these processes are multiple representations of these processes. It might be that the Americans think of photosynthesis one way, but the Japanese think about it another way, and the French think about it another way. And so these are not only do you have lots of processes with lots of uncertainties, but you have lots of ways of representing these processes. And these are the reasons, or a lot of the reasons, why we have such uncertainties in our understanding of, um, of the terrestrial biosphere uh, response to climate. And we look at the climate response here, and if we just focus in on the NPP, that what the plants are actually doing in terms of photosynthesis uh, minus their respiration. Uh, the uncertainty is large enough that it actually encompasses this negative and positive. We don't know in the future if ecosystems, the terrestrial biosphere, is going to be a carbon sink or a source. It's not even like how much of a sink is it going to be or how much of a source it's going to be. We don't know either way. And where do these uncertainties come from? From these models, right? So this is um, the C4 MIP um, about, I think, nine years ago or something from Pure Freezing Stone. And you can see these models into the future diverge. Some go up, some go down. Uh, a lot of it has to do with their CO2 sensitivity versus their drought sensitivity. Again, these kind of competing forces. This was like 2006. I think it was 2006. Uh, Pierre, Pierre redid this analysis in the CMIP 5. And you would think that these models would improve uh, with you know, time. And this is what, the, what they look like more recently. So you can see that. Uh, we're still struggling to reduce these uncertainties into the future. And like I said, the, the biosphere, this carbon cycle uncertainty, is, is a huge component. Um, another way that I like to talk about these different models and these different uncertainties, is it's like the blind men and the elephant, that fable, where you have different people trying to figure out what's happening in front of them without knowing the real answer. And everyone's saying something different. Uh, but, um, but everyone's also saying kind of the same thing. So in, you know, it's a carbon sink. It's a carbon source. Uh, depends if we have nutrients. Another, another thing about how these models are developed and our understanding, um, and we talked about where, these, where our measurements are taken, the models are also developed in the same kind of biased uh, geographical representation. Here's a cartogram of where the models are developed. And they are, as, as you, where you'd imagine, in, in, you know, in the developed countries. But as we know, most of the process and the complication happens in, um, for instance, in the Amazon or the Congo or, or the, the, the boreal, or boreal forest or the Arctic. So um, our understanding of how the world works is certainly influenced by the data we can collect and what's around us. Um, and you can see why there's some bias there. So of course, and then you throw this other monkey wrench into it. It's one thing, it's all well and good to say, you know, there's a lot of differences out there. But then suddenly things are changing. It would you know, it'd be great if things weren't changing. We could like, nail down uh, our understanding of ecology and, and biogeochemistry. But now you've got this, right? Which it doesn't even need axes anymore, right? It's just like a, you could have it like as a, as a necklace. I don't know. Or just, it's like a symbol, a little bling. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, and this really influences the lungs of our planet. Um, all right. So there's water, there's carbon, there's nutrients. They all interact with each other. They all influence climate, and climate influences them. You can look at this from an atmospheric and ocean standpoint. 
Uh, we're I look at it, and, and uh, a lot of you in the room look at it from an ecosystem standpoint or a vegetation standpoint, uh, and a lot of outstanding questions, right? So if we look at the, the, the fate of the biosphere, there's kind of two extreme fates, right? You've got ecosystems thriving, what we call the beta factor in, in a simplistic way, or ecosystems collapsing, the gamma factor. Um, and we want to know which one, what's it going to be in the future? Which one is it going to be? Um, and if we look at the models, we can run these experiments where you have the, um, the, the total carbon, basically, uptake. Um, and if you just looked at CO2, CO2 is great. Plants love CO2. But if you, um, if you throw in climate, such as droughts, you start to lose the amount of carbon taken up. And then if you throw in the human component, the land use component, uh, like deforestation, you start to lose that more. So you can start to see that a little bit with models. So for the CO2 effect, uh, Dave Schimmel, who I don't know if he's showing up yet, um, and Britt Stevens and I came out with a paper earlier this year that looked just at the CO2 effect. And we kind of split the, the world into the north and, and, and or the, the tropics and the extra tropics. And we used mass balance. And we, we basically gathered all our available data from atmosphere, uh, atmospheric inversions, which I don't need to introduce because Leslie already did that for me, so that's great. Um, She's doing it more rapidly now. I don't know. It's going to take me. Okay. Um, and we looked at um, our forest measurements, thousands and thousands of trees, and looked to see um, you know, how much was lost from deforestation, but how much was gained from regrowth plus maybe a CO2 effect. And then older trees, established forests, that were still growing when you wouldn't expect them to grow because they were being fertilized by CO2. We looked at our land models with and without CO2 on. And all these three different kind of um, types or these communities uh, looking at the CO2 effect started converging onto uh, a zone where we were starting to figure out how much and, um, and where this, the CO2 effect was happening. Now, we don't know if this is going to happen into the future, um, but this is where it was over the last 10, 20 years or so. So that's great. So we know plants love CO2, and we can see this from uh, um, uh, lab experiments and, and field studies. But what about the, the climate effect? So if we look at the Amazon or Amazonia, and uh, I think it was Ryan who talked about this. Um, Michelle? All right. All right. I think she really wants to connect to the internet. FYI. <laughs> um, so, so, so Ryan talked about the, the Amazon forest dieback. Like these models predicting the, the, the death of the Amazon or this, or this retraction of the, the humid tropical forest. Um, I mean, this is worrisome. These are, these are, this is our, our biggest breathing source of, 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 the bio, of the terrestrial biosphere, not to mention our, our treasure trove of biodiversity um, and other ecosystem services. Now, in 05, it was the worst drought in our history of records that hit the Amazon. Um, and uh, there was a lot of tree death. I'm going to skip through this because Ryan already covered that, so that was good. Um, and you got you had the original papers that said the Amazon rainforests were greening up because uh, they loved the drought. Um, because there was still plenty of soil moisture and there was just fewer clouds, so they can get more sunlight. Uh, but then you had, you know, Amazon forest did not green up. So there's been a lot of work on this. 
uh, lots of lots of papers again but this is a critical question so it spurs a lot of research 2005 being the worst drought in the history of our records for the Amazon uh, 2010 was the worst drought so these these model projections of mm, Amazon's going to die back because there's going to be more intense and frequent droughts into the future we're already uh, starting to see uh, uh, before our very eyes what was different in 2010 unlike 2005 is uh, we have uh, a new measurement that looks not just at greenness but at um, at, at fluorescence, and I'll not talk too much on this because uh, Christian Frankenberg will talk more on this later. Well, NASA's also been on it uh, for the past few years or so. We have a carbon monitoring system that has been integrating the ocean, the land, the atmospheric and anthropogenic observations and models together. I thought Leslie would talk about this. I didn't have to, but she didn't talk about it. Um, but uh, you know, NASA's trying to really constrain our understanding of the carbon cycle through observations and models. Uh, what about the boreal forest, you know, the second largest biome? Uh, what's going on there? Um, well, we, we, we talked about methane and all this carbon locked beneath the permafrost that's now being exposed. How do the models do in this region? And here's a paper that I put out last year just for Alaska. It was part of the CARVE um, mission where we looked at lots of different models and we said, what are the models saying in terms of whether or not Alaska is a carbon sink or source? And you can see that Every single possible conceivable pattern of red versus blue versus yellow is illustrated in these models. It is like a giant game of Twister where all the kids are just like locked up and they fall on each other. And so there, there's this enormous uncertainty. And even like, you know, not all models are created equally. The models that are supposedly better at uh, the, that, that region totally disagreed with each other too. So um, NASA has just launched the Arctic Boreal Vulnerability Experiment. It's a 10-year campaign, a field campaign-based campaign, um, where, which is very unusual in, in, in funding cycles to have 10-year uh, cycles. And this is, this is pretty exciting. And this is really to reduce this uncertainty in the region, scale up uh, our sparse measurements, add more measurements, interface with the airborne, the satellite, and the modeling community to understand how to reduce these in uh, the, the first selections. Uh, just got selected like two months ago, uh, and uh, uh, I, was, I was just uh, at the first science team meeting last week, and it was, it was pretty exciting. So um, there's also a whole philosophical component about how we decide which models are good versus bad. Um, and this, this gets far, this moves away from quantitative and into the philosophical and political realm. If a model that's good at, at water but bad at carbon, is that as good as a model that's good at you know, carbon but bad at water? Is a model that's good at annual cycles better than a model that's good at diurnal cycles? Um, what about when we don't have enough data to confront models and models that look good because they've kind of maybe tuned or gotten lucky uh, to available data, but we don't have enough data in, say, like the Amazon? So uh, there's a lot of... Um, development. Uh, uh, Jim Randerson in the audience has been uh, uh, kicking that off um, and it's been developing, but it's very difficult to, to kind of say which models are best and how do we reduce these uncertainties? How do we weight models against each other? How do we reduce that spread of uncertainty that the IPCC uh, uh, tends to depend on? Ryan showed this figure, wh which is how well is carbon space sampled? And this is kind of my animated version. That's the land mass. And we, we have two poles of the carbon cycle, right? That's our GPP, our breathing in. But then we've got the carbon stored in the soils. And there's a lot stored in the tropics and a lot stored in the Arctic. 
But of course, as Ryan showed, our sampling doesn't quite cover these two poles of the carbon cycle. And Ryan and Dave Schimmel and I and others uh, um, uh, published this paper um, earlier this year as well. So because our ground sampling isn't adequate, and, and probably won't be for a lot of regions, the, the Congo region, uh, very important, but very, very difficult, both topographically and politically, uh, to sample it well. We're trying, uh, but it's hard. So remote sensing. Now, we're in a bit of a golden age for terrestrial remote sensing. There are a ton of amazing products out there across water, carbon. We've got precipitation, snow, evapotranspiration, soil moisture, groundwater, runoff. We've got vegetation water content, wetlands, inundation, freeze-thaw, the greenness. We've got fluorescence, um, canopy height, biomass, fire, um, chlorophyll, lignin, uh, canopy, nutrients. I wonder if that's me. Is that me? I'm just going to turn off my phone. Uh, um, mycorrhizae, um, land surface temperature, and so on. So we've got a whole slew of new observations out there that can now be used to constrain and confront these models. All right, just focusing a little bit on the water. So I talked a lot about a carbon right now, just the water component. If we look at the water cycle, um, and we have this uncertainty on, on water, the water cycle, or water resources. You know, we've got rain and snow. Um, we've got evapotranspiration and soil moisture, the, the, the deep groundwater storage, and your eventual runoff. And these, the uncertainty on all these components leads to our uncertainty in water resources. Uh, we know this very well now in California. We have new, we can now measure from space or from remotely um, airborne in future space every component of the water cycle. So we, we're, GPM, this Global Precipitation Measurement uh, Constellation, it, it has kicked off to advance past the uh, Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission, TRIM. Uh, we can see that snow, um, but uh, we can also fly around with LIDAR, getting that snowpack and albedo um, and converting that to, uh, um, uh, to water content. Evapotranspiration, this is one of my specialties. Uh, we can track the energy required to evaporate water, not necessarily the water itself as a molecule, but uh, water vapor flux as a latent heat flux. Um, and we just got this new mission called EcoStress, which Ryan uh, talked about. And I won't talk much on it because we'll have more this afternoon on that. Uh, SMAP, the soil moisture, um, soil moisture passive mission, I guess. Um, and it's, uh, okay, that was, that was a low blow. Uh, I'm on the SMAP team. but. Um, uh, getting soil moisture, um, and then the the, the groundwater um, using uh, GRACE to look at gravitational anomalies as more groundwater pulls the satellites to towards the Earth, uh, more or less groundwater pulls the satellites to Earth less, um, and then using that same kind of lidar technique that we use for snow uh, to look at topography, uh, we can start to look at the height of rivers or, or reservoirs as well as the ocean, um, and that'll get us that last runoff component. So now we're able to kind of reduce these uncertainties as we start to bring it down. And of course, um, this is a cartoon, so I can make my uncertainty go to zero, but that's not, will never happen. Um, we also talk about scaling, right? As water use uh, is, is very heterogeneous in space and time, um, a lot of different techniques are used to scale up. And using evapotranspiration as an example, um, we can have these ground towers or drones scaling up. We can go to airborne and, and up to space. Um, 
I've built sensors that you can put into trees to, to measure how much water is being used. All right, so the, the flux towers, I, we mentioned they can measure carbon dioxide. They can also measure water fluxes. Uh, we're working on drones to measure fields and go through forests. Um, we've got airborne capabilities that can look at um, water through temperature, high tests, and, and there's other airborne capabilities looking at um, a lot of things we'll talk about uh, from fluorescence to hyperspectral, um, LIDAR, uh, I'm not going to go through all the airborne components, um, the evapotranspiration which I showed. So uh, we, you know, we can get a lot of, we can get all the water components from space, which is exciting. Running out of time. Uh, last component, nutrients. All right, let's look at the CO2 rise uh, again in the context of photosynthesis. Where is that red in this equation? It's right there. So if, if this is increasing kind of at an exponential, you know, seemingly exponential rate, um, and you have water and energy, let's say for, for uh, you know, light is, is not limiting, let's say you had enough water. What, what, what does this mean? Well, you kind of get something that looks like that. Right, it, you know, it goes to, to exponentially uh, higher. And, and that's what the models are showing, right? They, they show this, the net primary production or the vegetation carbon goes up and up and up and up and up. So much so that it's unrealistic how much carbon that is. You know, we see these numbers, but what does that actually mean like in, in our front yard? It, it kind of means something like this, right? On our mailbox, right? You have to put that carbon somewhere. And, um, but the models are, are not limited uh, by nutrients. Uh, as, as anyone who has had a garden know, uh, you know, put, put some nitrogen or phosphorus on it or potassium and you, um, and, and you get more growth, which means that there isn't enough nitrogen or phosphorus generally in natural ecosystems. And models that have been putting it in, uh, put nutrient cycles in, have, have shown drastic uh, or, or fundamentally altered behaviors. I took a survey of nearly 100 modelers uh, or modeling groups um, and ask them, what processes have you developed in the last five years in the model? And I, I put it into a, a Wordle where the size of the, the word or, or phrase uh, is reflective of the response rate. And you can see in the past five years, these are all the processes, soils, nitrogens there, land use, hydrology. And then I asked them again, uh, what processes do you do expect to develop in the next five years? And here's that Wordle. So you can start to see where we are in a developmental standpoint of these mo of the model processes and the dynamics, um, I, I've been working on a lot of this. This is just from my research talk. I'm not going to skip through this. Um, so yeah, fun. I'm putting fun into climate modeling. Yeah. Uh, there's also mycorrhizae, these these fungi, which basically go and find nitrogen or phosphorus and give them to the plants. Uh, and mycorrhizae are associated with or attached to nearly every single species on the planet. Uh, it's like a giant underground, you know, Wall Street economy where mycorrhizae are saying, I've got nitrogen, and the plants are like, i got carbon. So it's kind of like, <laughs> so we're putting that into models. Uh, but the type of mycorrhizae uh, is, is very important. Sorry, I'm skipping through because I got my yellow light on. Uh, we'll also be able to pick up some of this from remote sensing where individual species with different spectral fingerprints have qualities in common uh, depending on which mycorrhizae uh, they're associated with that are unique relative to the others. And we have a paper that uh, is in minor revision at Global Change Biology that used about 150,000, 140,000 trees and showed that we can detect this mycorrhizal association from space. Um, 
skip through the face experiments, uh, fertilization experiments. Um, but basically, these, these nutrient cycles uh, are being put into the models to reduce this exponential rise into something more realistic that we're seeing both with data uh, and uh, to, to curb that ability to go exponentially higher. And um, uh, one of my postdocs, Ming Jie Xu, just had a paper accepted in GCB uh, talking about a lot of these dynamics. Um, let me skip through this last slide. It's coming right up. Um, and so we also have techniques to look at uh, nutrient limitation. We're talking about the synergy across multiple instruments. Um, we, and uh, we, we also have nitrogen use efficiency uh, using water, carbon, and nutrients uh, as they intersect to develop new ecosystem science. So, so that, that's, that's pretty much it. And, um, you know, and, and hopefully, our advancements in the science will help us really understand what that physical sensitivity is to that P or that terrestrial biosphere. Um, and you know, so we can really know if, if what we're looking at is, is real or not, you know, is royalty or not. And hopefully we can uh, live happily ever after. All right. Thanks.